Christ is risen. We have held our breath for three days waiting for this moment when we can stand at the tomb with the faithful women and respond to the good news of God's glorious victory. He is risen indeed. And so we turn to the gospel story today and join the three women on their way to the tomb, unaware of what they will find. They arrive in the faint light of the early morning, ready with spices to anoint a body that isn't there, and worried about moving a stone that is no longer in the way. There's a young man in a white robe waiting for them there with the best possible news to share. You are looking for Jesus, he says, but Jesus isn't here. He is risen, and we are ready to shout back, he is risen indeed, but our response is not recorded in this gospel. Instead, the young man's joyous pronouncement is met with silence, a silence only broken by the patter of retreating footsteps when all who heard the good news fled in fear. And so ends the gospel of Mark. Now, what are we supposed to do with an ending like that? Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, gathered together in spirit, though separated by distance, be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Not every ending is worth hanging on to. Some, somewhere in my middle elementary years, I discovered a unique book tucked away on a corner of the bookshelf my grandparents kept stocked with children's literature for our visits. There is an ominous inscription on the inside page of this book. Beware and warning, it read with an exclamation point. This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. Called a choose-your-own-adventure book, it lived up to its premise. Every few pages throughout the book, the story would pause as I, the reader, was presented with a choice and prompted to flip to a certain page depending on what I chose to do. There were consequences to every decision, though they were nearly impossible to guess before flipping the pages forward or backward to find out. The story built with every decision I made, and I was completely entranced until it all came to a sudden and screeching halt. With one last flip of the pages and the apparent culmination of my poor choices, my character suffered an ignoble defeat, and the story was over. I wasn't happy with that ending. The whole series of the Choose Your Own Adventure books began in the late 1960s with a lawyer named Edward Packard who told imaginative bedtime stories to his children and sometimes let them suggest what a character should do next. Realizing that his kids appreciated the story's endings more when they had a hand in shaping them, Packard wrote a book about a shipwreck adventure that applied this idea and required readers to make choices that influenced the outcome of the book. While it was slow to be picked up by a publisher, the book was eventually published in 1975 and led to the entire Choose Your Own Adventure series, which began in 1979. The books were a quick favorite with children, but occasionally criticized by adults who worried about some of the gruesome fates awaiting the right or rather the wrong series of choices. Every book had numerous potential endings, and not all of them were good. 
as one example, this is a portrayal of every possible storyline in the first book of the series, as is mapped out by the fan and graphic designer Christian Swinehart. You can see in this graphic the arcs, which show how the book pages are connected, and the colored boxes there are the potential endings that you can end up with. They're color-coded, red for bad endings, orange for mediocre, and blue for good endings. We can see that there are a lot of chances here to get a bad ending. But Packard dismissed this criticism of his books and the genre, saying, kids got it very quickly. You die, yes, but you take another choice and go on. And that's what I did. After that first unfortunate ending, I tried leaving a finger between the pages at every critical junction to go back and try other choices as needed, but I quickly ran out of fingers. I tried working my way backward through my choices, but that was a sure way to get confused or lost among the page numbers. Eventually, I learned to simply go back to the beginning as many times as needed until I found a more satisfying ending. The Gospel of Mark doesn't have a satisfactory ending. Even grammatically in the original Greek, it leaves the reader hanging as the whole gospel ends on a preposition, the word gar, which means for, a word which so definitively cannot end a sentence that the entire gospel ends here on a sentence fragment practically finished before it has hardly even begun. It's so abrupt and upsetting, in fact, that at least two early copyists tried to bring the gospel to a more comfortable close by writing in endings of their own that can still be found at the end of Mark chapter 16. Their endings are usually noted as later additions to the gospel, often in a header or a footnote in our Bibles. For while they still offer valuable insight, they aren't a part of the story that Mark is telling. All of the earliest manuscripts agree the story ends with the women rushing away from the tomb in fear, saying nothing to nobody, and with Jesus' twelve chosen disciples nowhere to be found. If Mark had put the choice to the reader, we might have chosen differently, and not just here. Given the option, there are more than a few alternate decisions we might have made. From the start of the gospel, the twelve chosen disciples have been confounding our expectations in the worst possible ways as they fumble and bumble their way throughout the story. These disciples don't understand the parables that Jesus uses to teach, and so Jesus has to explain everything in private to them. They watch as Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people and just days later fret about how Jesus could possibly feed a slightly smaller crowd with more bread than he had the first time around. When Jesus explains that he is going to his death, Peter scolds him and insists that Jesus must have misunderstood something along the way. When they try to throw out an evil spirit from a young boy, they fail because apparently they just straight up forgot to pray. They tried to keep children away from Jesus, and they argued about which of them would be Jesus' second in command. Once, they woke Jesus up when they were out on the water in a big storm, and they thought they might die. But later, then, they fell asleep in the garden waiting for Jesus' betrayal. Once, they left everything to follow Jesus, but then later, they fled from Jesus as soon as he was arrested. There are a few choices we might make differently than the disciples. Now, the women fare better throughout the gospel, and even stay close enough to Jesus to watch his crucifixion from a distance. But even when they catch a glimpse of the resurrection here, they still keep their distance. I wonder if this all wasn't enough 
to start a revolt among Mark's early listeners, someone might have shouted out that the women must have told the good news to someone because the story had made it to them and the church was founded on their witness. Someone else might have shouted that the 12 disciples must have come around because they all knew how those disciples lived and died for their faith. And I wonder if at some point all Mark's listeners didn't suddenly realize that they knew the ending to the gospel story and this wasn't it. And I wonder if that's exactly Mark's point. This gospel was never really about the disciples. Mark took history and wrapped it in a parable when we weren't looking so that when we were finally starting to get fed up with his poor excuse for disciples and ready to insist that any one of us could write a better ending than that, could live a better ending than that, Mark could stop in the middle of a sentence and let us do exactly that. The young man in the tomb tells the women that Jesus has gone ahead of them to Galilee and that they are to follow and see him there. It's a return back to the place where the gospel began, where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and where the disciples were first invited to follow. It is, in essence, a fresh start. And in it is an invitation to the reader to enter into the gospel story and follow after Christ ourselves, to go back and make the choices we begged the disciples to make the first time around and to see what happens when we're in charge. It's a chance to do it our way. But reader, be warned, if we live long enough, we're bound to come back around to the same place, looking more like the disciples than we would ever want. Peter himself is the poster child of conviction throughout the gospel, so sure that he would never desert his teacher, and even he runs from Jesus in the end. See, Mark has no qualms about the difficulty inherent to living the gospel. Following Jesus means leaving behind comfort and security, pushing back against the rules and customs that marginalize and exploit, welcoming the outcast and rejecting the establishment, feeding the hungry crowds even when it seems like they could have avoided starvation by just planning a bit better, giving up on our own lives to save the lives of others, standing faithfully against forces of wickedness and evil even when it sets all the political and religious leaders against us, and loving so deeply that it very well could kill us and yet might also raise us from the dead. There is difficulty inherent to living the gospel, and we're called to do our best, and we will do our best, but somewhere along the way, we are sure to stumble and find all our failings and foibles stripped as bare as the young man who fled naked from Jesus' arrest in the garden. But this may not be the end of his story or of ours. When the women go looking for the crucified Christ that fateful Easter morning, it is not an angel that Mark describes greeting them, but a young man now robed in white. It could well be the very same nameless figure as before, but transformed there in the tomb of Jesus, redeemed in the resurrection itself. Mark never tells us who this young man is, and many have wondered over the years who he might be. Various historical figures have been suggested, but none with any certainty, and I wonder if that's not intentional. The part could be played by anyone, could be any of us, could be me, revealed at my worst moment only to be restored by the one who never stopped loving me even unto death. And so an unsatisfactory ending 
becomes a new beginning. A visit to the tomb becomes a glimpse of new life, and all who go seeking Jesus among the dead learn to begin anew in a process of continual growth and reformation, a flight that leads to restoration, a fear that becomes faith, of foolish disciples forever drawn closer to the person of Christ. It turns out, in the end, that Mark lived up to his premise, for as we begin, as we return to the beginning, and as we flip back to the very start of the gospel, we find that that very first verse is almost just as abrupt and jarring as the last one. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son. This is just the beginning, as Mark writes it. It's just the beginning and the story isn't over because God is still working in us and through us. What's captured on these pages is just the beginning. The rest is for us to write. The gospel story continues in our living, in our faithful insistence to turn back to the beginning again and again until one day the resurrection will be complete in us and in all of creation, and all things are restored to God. Thanks be to God.